podcasting from Chico, California, tucked in between some of Northern California's best freshwater fisheries. This is the Barbless Podcast, a podcast about NorCal fly fishing, guiding, fisheries management, and sustainability. If you have ideas or any questions for the show, leave the guys a voice message on the Barbless Podcast hotline, area code 530-636-2523. Also check out http colon slash slash podcast.barbless.co, where you can download past episodes and show notes. Be sure to follow them on Instagram at barbless.co and connect with them on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash barbless.co. Here's your hosts, Chad Alderson and Nick Hanna. Fish on. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Barbless Podcast. I'm your host, Chad Alderson with Nick Hanna. With us today is the owner of Ted Fay Fly Shop. Bob Grace. Bob, how you doing? Good, good. Thank you, Chad. Thanks for having us on. Hey, it's my pleasure. Hey, so Bob, before we get into, uh, you know, the fishery up here on the Upper Sack, talk about the, if you could talk about your, your background, how you landed in Dunsmere and, and the history of the fly shop here. Yeah, well, you know, um, I was in the financial services industry for a long time and, and uh, slowly got pretty damn tired of it and decided that I wanted to do something else with my life, but I wasn't sure what it was. I had started fishing here in the mid-'80s and, and uh, always, uh, well, actually fell in love with Dunsmere and always managed to try to get up here at least one or two times every fishing season. And then um, uh, when that time in my professional life, it, it came, became obvious to me that I needed to make a change I thought I'd like to move to Dunsmere, so I did something absolutely insane and bought a house here, <laughs> uh, figuring that sooner or later I'd be able to find a way to make a living. And about a year after I was up here, after I owned the house, I found that the shop was for sale. Saw it in a, an ad on a Sunday morning. So I went down and saw Joe, and by the end of the week, the deal was done. And it was shortly thereafter, about six months after, I decided what the hell have I done myself <laughs> uh, you know uh, but I thought that I could you know make it into a way to make a living while I lived here and this and is the mid 90s r- roughly yeah, that you 97 did that? Yeah. it was 97 yeah and so and it's been a great ride it's been a lot of fun uh, you know it's not with without hardship and without a few sorrows here and there but I look back in it for the last 21 years I've had an an opportunity to make a living in God's country, so That's you know, great. it's 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 been super. Um, in terms of the store, it was kind of a no-brainer from from the standpoint that I was at at the time. I didn't really feel I had the expertise to run a fly shop. I had been an angler for a long time, but I didn't feel that I was an expert angler by any means. I didn't feel that I had any expertise in business. But I knew that there was a franchise in, in the Ted Fay Fly Shop. It had, it had been around for so long, and it had, had really a solid reputation as not necessarily being a big business, but being a good business, a business that kept, you know, took care of people. And so I thought, well, I can you know, build upon that and make it into a living. Um, the store itself has got probably a pretty, pretty um, – serious history it uh, was we don't have I don't have exact uh, numbers 
Yeah, so the store's got an interesting history. Um, you know, essentially, we can probably lay claim to the fact that it's the oldest, uh, op- you know, operating fly shop in California. That is in continuous operation. It's been, um, uh, although I don't really have any records, it's been, uh, near as I can put it together, the store was opened about 1950. Yeah, the store opened about 1950. Ted, uh like like myself, moved to the area, and he looked for a way to make a living, so he bought the Lookout Point Motel. Uh, he was an avid angler, a hell of a fisherman, um, and he would take people fishing. And because he had motel guests, he needed to sell them fishing tackle so that they could. Right, yeah. And Ted tied flies and sold fishing tackle, and so that was the genesis of the Ted Fay Fly Shop. In the 60s sometime, uh, the state of California came to uh, Ted and said, we're going to take your motel property uh, for eminent domain to build the freeway. Interestingly, that property was never used Hmm. for the freeway construction, but it basically uh, moved Ted out, and he moved into his house. He had kept a home in the vicinity of the motel. And the fly shop uh, was moved into the garage of his house. And so he operated this little fly shop in in a garage in front of his house (laughs) until uh, he passed away in 1982. Joe Kimsey, the second owner of the store, had worked with Ted as as an independent guide, but he picked up a lot of trips for Ted, and they became friends. Uh, and in '82, um, he bought what was left of the shop from the family, and continued it in operation um, for um, the 15 years until I bought it. Interestingly enough, people say, "Well, how come it's not the Bob Grace uh, Fly Shop?" And I say, "Well, very simply, Joe didn't change the name, so I wasn't either. Right. <laughs> so you, smart, we can yeah. we can blame it on Joe." <laughs> um, but uh, so I bought the store from Joe in 97. And part of the deal was that Joe was going to stay with me for three years. Um, I uh, unfortunately, we lost Joe in 2011. But until 2009, he stayed with the store. So he had a little bit of a problem with the math. Three years turned into 13. He was my partner, you know, in, in mm-hmm. effect. Um, we. <laughs> <laughs> we had some great times. Uh, one story I'll relay is Joe and I would lo- love to bicker. We would just yell at each other and scream, and, you know, this and that. And, you know, and he was hard of hearing, so you had to yell at him to talk to him. And we're in the middle of one of these mutual rants. Customer comes in and says, have you guys ever considered marriage counseling? <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, partnerships ju- are tough. <laughs> well, yeah, and they're they're great. Um, it was um, it was always a, a joy to have him around, and, and we we felt some serious sense of loss when he was gone. Yeah. But um, and then the in um, prior to his passing in 2007, we moved down here uh, from the north end of town where we were located. Um, the store the store was considerably smaller uh, even after I'd expanded it twice uh, it was still a lot smaller than it is today um, and uh, it is where we are now that's cool yeah it is it, it was it's been a lot of fun cool what um, sorry I was yeah trying right. to think of the next question so um, yeah tell us a little tell us a little bit about the one of my friends, he claims that his dad or his grandfather was the head engineer on the 
um, train that ended up dumping all that poison into the upper sack. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, you know, I, that, I, when that happened, and I, I didn't live here then. Uh, I so it's before '97. Then it was before '97. It was uh, I had fished here uh, since, as I said, since the mid '80s. Uh, the train fell off the track on July 14th, uh, 1991. Okay. The reason I can remember that is it's Bastille Day. And um, the entire river died that day. Uh, if you were an osprey feeding in the river, likely you were, inf- you know, affected and died. Uh, no fish survived. Wow. Uh, invertebrate, nothing survived. From where down? It was from the Cantera Loop, which is about four miles north of Dunsmere, all the way down to the lake. Spurned it. Just, yeah. It turned it into a literally a... Uh, a, a just it was antiseptic. There was nothing alive in the river within 48 hours. Wow. I mean, we actually, you know, when you go out to this river, and you guys will today, um, it'll give you a strong sense of the regenerative capability of nature if it's given a chance. I mean, this thing was dead. Yeah, and then prior, so prior to that spill, do you do you have a rough idea of what the number of fish per were per mile you know i don't know and it's even fish and game doesn't know one of the things that is curious and and so i can't answer your question um and the reason that i can't answer your question is because they planted this river like crazy the entire length of the river I can remember my first visit to the Sims campground, seeing people walking around with stringers of five large fish just coming and going. Hmm. Um, and <clears throat> so the, the character of the river has changed substantially. It's managed mostly for wild fish now. And so to, to be able to compare it to the river that, was, that there wa- it was before the spill is like trying to compare apples to oranges. Okay. They're just two different two different isn't it amazing though that nature finds a way and now it's yeah it's, just yeah. Uh, yeah and really all they had to do was tell people to keep their hands off of it in every way for four years because the river reopened in 94 and so um when um it reopened it was fishable so bob i just recently learned uh when we did our podcast with the fly shop guys in reading um, that there are certain sections of the water here in the upper sack that are um, that are that are managed as a as as a wild section, and then there's other sections that are planted. Mm-hmm. I had no idea. Can you kind of you know break it down from yeah. north to south how that works? Yeah, I think I think the easiest way, Chad, to to think about this uh, is if you think of the whole river as being managed for wild fish. There's one exception to that management. And that is an area north of town. It's called Scarlet Way Bridge. Scarlet Way, yeah. Scarlet okay. Way Bridge down to the Sweetbriar Bridge, which is about seven miles south of Dunsmere. Okay. In the summertime, uh, that area is planted, and there's a five-fish limit, and there's no special requirements for barbless hooks, and you can use bait. Outside of that area, outside of that seven-mile stretch, it, the river is artificials only with barbless hooks. Now, above it, and below. Uh, above yeah. and below. The okay. area above has a zero limit. The area below has a two-fish two, two fish limit. 
although frankly that really doesn't that it's not a meaningful part of the conversation that I have with most of my customers the because sand, they, they because leave. they don't they're not going to keep any fish they don't anymore. slug them right yeah right. exactly so if you think of the whole river as being managed for wild fish with that ex- that exception mm-hmm. now in the winter time after November fifteenth the entire river takes uh, on the same regulations as that very upper stretch. So Zero it's limit, our, artificial or exactly, okay. exactly. So in the winter season, from November fifteenth to the following uh, April, the last Saturday in April, it's a zero limit artificials only on the entire river. So when did that change? When did it open year round like that? Uh, it opened year round about a decade ago. Mm-hmm. I don't precisely know when it was. It might have been two thousand five, two thousand six. Um, the, uh, the river fishes differently in the wintertime. A lot of times the river's not fishable in the wintertime. So it's, uh, it, it, it's... People are kayaking instead of well, fishing. Well, <laughs> no, they're not even kayaking because the weather's not good enough to go kayaking, yeah. you know, but... Uh, Do you yeah. have a lot of whitewater rafters that... In the spring, yeah. primarily, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think you see a lot of boaters uh, in the springtime when the flows are high and the weather's nice. Not many guys really want to go out uh, when the when the weather's bad, right? You know. Well, well, speaking of rafting, you know, we've Nick and I have talked about doing a little pontoon float on this this mm. sec, the, this river. Yeah. Uh, where where are they? You know, the traditional put ins and takeouts. Well, I think I did a well, I did a float when it was 900 cfs. Yeah. Out of the, I think the delta yeah, and, the, and yeah. the, flow the delta flow. Yeah. But um, it was yeah it was 900 it, it was big water but yeah. we needed it to get down yeah and so the fishing was still a little bit a little bit tough but yeah i mean uh jack trout a guide that's headquartered yeah. in mount shasta he yeah. he does floats yeah i mean uh, drifting the lower river uh it's not it's not a common practice but uh jack trout in uh, who's kind of headquartered in mount shasta uh has for the last decade or so uh, been drifting lower reaches the upper sack uh in an inflatable um Mm -hmm. and taking anglers down there and uh, i think generally uh earlier in the season he puts in at sims and takes out at pollard and then um you know as the season progresses his put-ins go further down further down and then toward the end of the summer uh you'll find jack drifting from uh you know the dog creek area down down to lakehead relatively short drift but significantly, it brings you to water that's really very difficult to access on foot. Right. So, uh, you know, I mean, and he's, he's to his credit, he's been a pioneer uh, in that. Uh, although, frankly, there's probably not enough room for a whole lot of people to be doing it. Right. Uh, it's just the, the river's the, not that big. How do the temperatures change from here to down there? Are you familiar well, with that? Well, you know, I think the temperatures here probably up at the Shasta Springs, which is a, a complex of springs just above Mossbray Falls, so about a mile north of Dunsmere, maybe a little bit more than a mile north of Dunsmere. It's probably coming out of the ground at, uh, I think it's a high 50s mm-hmm. or so. Mm-hmm. Uh, last night or this morning, uh, the river at Delta, which is the only real measuring station we have on right. the river, right. uh, the flows were, I think, uh, or the temps were about 69 degrees yeah. mm-hmm. uh, at the high, and they'll, they'll drop down in the mid-60s in the mornings. 
which is one of the good things about having more water this year because the temperatures were actually higher last year Mm. down there. Gave it a good flush. Yeah, and having more water volume uh, stabilizes the temperatures a little bit more. So it's always nice to come off of this temperature peak knowing that the river survived <laughs> another year. Yeah, has the, uh, you know, because of the high water, has the topology of the river changed all that much? Have you heard? Yeah, I think it has. I saw some changes as I fished it through the winter early in, in the early spring. I really haven't spent any significant time on it this year during the season, uh, but the reports are. And I, from what I've seen, there's been significant changes in the flows. This was, a, you know, I mean, it would, uh, at, uh, in January, the river went to 39,800. Yeah, you're on the news. <laughs> That's insane. You're yeah, on the news. 39,800. <laughs> insane. And you figure today you guys are going to fish today, and it's going to be at 300. <laughs> right. So <laughs> <laughs> factor that in. A little bit in. different. I you guess know, you just fish the edges. feisty. <laughs> yeah, dodging boulders coming down the river. Right. You know, Soda <laughs> Creek is a, is a tributary of the uh, upper sack, and there's a picture over there that you can – Take a look and see what Soda Creek looked like in that during that period, and it, it was it, Soda Creek itself was bigger than the Upper Sac is. So they've been you know. on a treadmill half the yeah. year, basically. Oh, yeah. Well, we've been finding too, talking with people that those trout and some of these main stems will find those tributaries and yeah. go up in there and actually get out of that high water. To, yeah, to, you oh, know, it, it's amazing. Their survival mechanism it kicks in. There were stories uh, that I can't. Um, you know, authenticate, but in the 96, 97, or I should say the 97, 97 flood, yeah, yeah, that they found uh, trout in uh, rain gutters <laughs> what? in Dunsmere. Yeah. Holy smokes. Yeah. Hey, they do what they need to do yeah, to, yeah, yeah. to survive. That's I mean, crazy. we do too. We, right. don't, we don't think of it that way, but yeah. Right. Yeah. They do. That's nuts. Interesting. Yeah. yeah, I've seen I've seen YouTube videos of people catching fish in in uh, sewers and stuff like that. But that I've never seen a trout get stuck in a gutter. That would be well. One funny. one story I heard of this last winter was a, a, a customer of mine found a dead trout on his deck. What? After oh, Osprey flood. dropped it or something. Oh, it's, I, it's high I water. Have no idea. It Maybe. might have come up in there in the high water. Might and found have been a little dead. Yeah. or something, or died, or just floated yeah, up yeah, there. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's a little unnerving to come oh, home yeah. and find a dead fish on your deck. <laughs> or somebody's messing with them. Yeah, yeah <laughs> that's true. That's true. So hey, we were talking about um, you know when we we had a customer come in, so we shut the recording down for a sec. But we were talking about the the lower lake and the and the migratory pattern of some of those lake fish pushing up into the lower yeah. reaches of the of the upper sac. Can you kind of get into that a bit? Yeah, I mean, and, and it's 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 really observational. There's nothing scientific. That's probably a little bit of my frustration with with the the science that we don't have on the river. Um, a lot of what I. A lot of what I hear, a lot of what I say is uh, apocryphal. I mean, we, we don't really have any scientific basis for it. But there appears to be a significant population of fish in the lower river that migrate up from the lake. And usually you can tell they're, they're silver, they're sil- more silver than the, than the native uh, the, uh, the the fish in the upper, upper Just state. rainbows or browns as well? There are because you know some, the McLeod gets that brown yeah, trout run. Yeah, and, and I think the upper sack is seeing more brown trout as a result of. And again, hmm. my my opinion is that it's probably because the McLeod has had some very dirty years. Hmm. That mm-hmm. some of the outliers, some of the brown trout who are outliers, 
have just chosen a different river to mm-hmm. go to. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're seeing a few more brown trout on the upper sack than I've seen yeah. in the last 20 years. Cool. But, uh, you know, and I don't know if that's just, a you know, an escape valve. For, in warmer waters, you know? Uh, yeah, it's, it's possible. It, yeah. Yeah, I, it's hard to say why. But back to the lake fish, I mean, there just seems to be uh, this population of fish that migrates from the lake, moves up into the river. My personal feeling is that it's probably temperature-related, that there's a, a trigger at, at, at a point in the lake where the fish say, hey, you know, it's getting a little warm here. It's inhospitable. Let's move to someplace cooler. Mm-hmm. You know, Lake Shasta can get to be pretty warm. Mm-hmm. Uh, this year, it doesn't seem to be as significant. And maybe it's because the lake is darn near full here in, in August, and uh, there's probably a good thermocline in the lake. But uh, later in the summer, that, that uh, the fish do come up here, and they'll, they'll stay through the winter cycle. I, I know that for a fact because I've caught them here uh, in you know December, January, February, March. Uh, around April they, they seem to slither back down to the lake mm. and maybe it's a uh, you know maybe it's a migratory run maybe some of those fish will stay and spawn uh, maybe some of them don't spawn we, we just really don't have a whole lot of information about them but the fact of the matter is they're there uh, and they make up a significant part of the sport fishery in in the lower reaches of the river yeah I, w- I had the fortunate I was fortunate enough to hook into one or two of them, two of them a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. They spit both times, but yeah. I saw one really well and it looked, it did, it was silver. So I'm assuming it was. They're uh, not quite like, as wary as say the fish up at Mossbray Falls. Yeah. Uh, they do tend to be larger. I mean, I think the average fish is much larger than they say the average fish up above Dunsmere. Um, and uh, you know, I mean, the, they're and they and it's not like they're just going to turn around and leave. They'll they'll remain in the system uh, through through most of the winter. Cool. Uh, so so they're they're not a full time resident yet. They're not mm-hmm. really just uh, you know it's not here and gone. It's not like a, a a steelhead run in the sense that they just come up to do their job and then boogie. I think yeah. that they they like to live here. This is uh, and. And it's very possible, it's almost probable, that they were bred here. And that's why they choose to come back here. Yeah, and you were saying that there may even be steelhead DNA in some of these fish. Yeah. Once the, the dam went up, there was all those ones that became landlocked, all the steelhead that just happened to be up yeah. during that, that build. Ron Hart is a veteran guide in Mount Shasta. That's, that's, his, he's, that's his pet theory, and I, I can't see anything to dispute it. Yeah. You know. Well, uh, you you mentioned guides, and I wanted to I wanted to um, you know cover you know if if someone in the Bay Area is listening or in LA is listening, they want to get up up north here and try out the fisheries. Um, what are some local guides that you would recommend well, and Steve, guide out of the shop Steve's, here? Yeah, he, Steve's one of them. He's one of them. Um, and then you've got uh, a couple of guides locally. You've got uh, Wayne Eng, um, and you've got uh, Rick Cox. And there are a couple of guide services. There's Shasta Trout in Mount Shasta, uh, headed mm-hmm. by Craig Nielsen. And then you've got uh, uh, Wild Waters, which is Chuck Volkhausen and um, uh, John Rickard. And, and there's the, the guide culture here is independent. Uh, in other words, okay. uh, I don't have Ted Fay Fly Shop doesn't have a guide service. So I try to keep everybody happy. I'd right. rather have customers than enemies. Yeah. So... Uh, 
we don't uh, or competitors is a better way of saying it yeah well let, let's talk about the fly shop here you've got a ton of stuff there you've got everything from uh everything you need to outfit basically and if you forgot anything you have a nice little shopping list of stuff on the uh, whiteboard over there I see and <laughs> I, I think I've actually forgotten a couple things now that I look over there so that's helpful to have well the the shopping list is there because uh, most of the people that um, uh, come in the store well I won't say most of the people but a significant number of the people that come in the store are over 40 so a lot of them don't even remember why they came into a flight <laughs> 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 so it's there as a prompt it's there yeah, so yeah, that yeah. they have a but, uh, yeah, it, it probably does help uh, because people say, oh, gee, you know, I, I need this or I need that. Yeah, we like to stock things that people are going to use on the river. Um, and uh, we have some fly tying materials. Mm -hmm. Certainly like to have a lot more. But, uh, you know, what space? space uh, you I've know. already seen a couple things that have caught my eye that I've, I just haven't it? seen in other fly shops. So yeah. yeah, I just picked good. up a few flies that I couldn't find anywhere else, so that was yeah. cool. Well, it's like nice to have unique things. But yeah. Most important thing is, is that really what I really want to do is um, have the typical customer who's coming from, say, Chico or Sacramento or, or the Bay Area to have the confidence to know that he can come in here and find what he's going to need. Not to be, um, not to be concerned that he's not he's going to come to a small town and not be able to find what he wants to go fishing that day. Yeah, I mean, that, I'm looking around. I'm wanting for nothing. So that's yeah. just, you did a great job yeah. covering everything. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Um, can we talk about the flies up here and you know yeah. seasonality and which yeah. which flies are selling best during yeah. what times of the year? Yeah. I think let let me just cover the basics. Yeah. Uh, in that, I think the basics are going to cover eighty percent of it, um, and that I think that the um, upper sac and, and the McLeod as well are, are kind of archetypical freestone streams in in terms of their their, their fishing. Um, you can get by with <clears throat> a, a lot of pocket water patterns uh, on the upper sac. I, I always um, encourage people to use their confidence flies. Uh, confidence flies in this area might be things like pheasant tails, prince nymphs. Mm -hmm. Bird's uh, nest. Bird's nest, yeah. exactly. Um, if, I think if you fish your confidence flies, you're going to do as well as you can on the upper sack. You know, granted, there's going to be some particular day when one fly or another or one class of flies is going to do better than others for example oh well the fish seem to be very active on caddis, caddis patterns mm -hmm. right. or they seem to be very active on betis patterns but i think that the the angler that is going to the upper sack or the mcleod for that matter or even the pit if he's got uh his basic confidence flies uh that he, you know they're they're gonna fish okay. they're gonna fish here and things that are in that category would be things like prince nymphs rubber legs uh, pheasant tails, various iterations of pheasant tails or princes for that matter, uh, caddis patterns, uh, things like the pupa, tanner, all mm -hmm. of them. Do you see more people doing like a hopper dropper technique? Yeah, or I think that's a very valid technique yeah. because there's a lot of relatively shallow shallow water, mm -hmm. and when the fish are active, you know, it Edges works. And stuff. Yeah. It works. yeah, I wanted to actually get into the techniques up, up here on the upper sack. What's the most predominant technique guys are using? Uh, you know, I mean... <laughs> We can put it into two categories, dry flies or nymphs. But, yeah. you know, in nymphs, you're going to find people using dry fly with a dropper 
a lot of times, particularly through the summer months when you're uh, covering a lot of water, mm-hmm. looking at, uh, you know, riffly water. Um, deep nymphing for those who are inclined. Um, you know, keep in mind the rigging is a little bit more intense, and, you know, um, and, you know, rigging with the indicator doesn't give you necessarily the, the capability to immediately change to a dry fly, whereas dry right. fly dropper, you can, you know, it's kind of ACDC. You can do both, and it's easily changed, and, mm-hmm. and it's pretty a, f- a pretty flexible technique. Once you, you know, uh, once you rig with an, a nymph and or a couple of nymphs and an indicator and some split shot, you're pretty much committed. You're going to do yeah. that for at least a little while. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's uh, what about streamer fishing? Uh, more, I'm hearing more and more about streamer fishing, um, especially probably for those lake fish. Yeah, I would think, I think you it's target kinda, with it's, those fish with some streamers. Yeah. And I think it's kind of a, a little bit of a lost art. I mean, we're mm-hmm. we're starting to see, uh, at least as a shop owner, I'm seeing a resurgence in interest in uh, streamer fishing. I love fishing streamers and dries. Yeah, and I yeah. just got into it. I dig it. Yeah. Uh, you know, there uh, there's some guides that are doing some pretty significant stuff with streamers over on the McLeod. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, we're, I mean, I like I say, it, it, it could be just a result of more and more guys getting interested in spay fishing. So mm. they're taking their spay fishing back to single-handed fishing. Right. Uh, you know, I mean, let's face it. Fishing streamers is essentially, you know, there are different variations, different ways to do it, but you're swinging flies. Mm -hmm. And so I think as we're seeing this growth in spay fishing, we're seeing a resurgence in interest in streamers. Hmm. Uh, There's certainly a lot more interest in streamers right now than there was 12 years ago. A lot more. I have, you know, when we moved into the store, I had no streamers in the shop to speak of. And now... You know, I've got a drawer full of them. Tug is the drug. Exactly. And, <laughs> and guys like it. It's simple. It really is yeah. simple. Mm-hmm. It is a simple way of fishing. I've I, always liked it, mm-hmm. the fact that, it, you know, if you're in a spot and you're, okay, I'm going to go downstream, you know, fishing streamers is kind of a good way to cover that water. To go downstream, exactly, because yeah, you're I'm, going that way anyway. If I'm going <laughs> upstream, I, I'm, it's hard to fish a streamer that way. And I'm, exactly. I might tend to throw a dry exactly. and dropper. Um, kind of. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's a matter of um, – Fishing slow today, and uh, I'm going to cover. I'm going to have to cover water to, to to catch some fish. Why not use a, a, a technique that just covers water? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I mean, I'm personally I'm not a streamer fisherman because I don't get out to spend the whole day doing it. Right. right. Uh, although the last couple of years, a couple of years ago, when we still had some significant mayfly hatches, I found myself uh, having a lot of fun just swinging wet flies oh cool mm-hmm. yep and that's yeah. a lot of fun too yeah, swinging and mergers and, and mm-hmm. exactly mm-hmm. exactly so the whole I, I i think the streamer thing is is uh, i mean it's just my take on it is is kind of a result of this interest in in swinging steelhead flies mm-hmm. yeah it makes mm-hmm. sense and uh, it's kind of an outgrowth of that. what well what what are some of your best sellers uh streamer wise for for the uh, episode it's, it's simple it stuff i mean yeah. some guys really like woolly just plain old yeah that's buggers. that uh, i've had success on this this yeah. river with a, just a black one and all things of like um, muddlers and and okay uh, there's a, a guy locally in wairika that ties some of these uh, fish skull uh, patterns with the, what's his name the sculpin uh, S- uh, scott oh i'm trying to think of his scott's last name um it escapes me it's right all right now. we'll google it and put yeah. it in show notes for those yeah. listening yeah and um 
it's um, yeah he he does a beautiful job on some of these cool so we're talking streamers hopper droppers i've heard some rumors about this ted fake technique that was popularized here what yeah uh well you know it's the it's the picture up on the wall pretty pretty much is that ted right there that's ted on the right but uh you know one of the things and it's 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 kind of like uh bragging rights and i don't really want to get into that but the fact of the matter is is that there's been a renaissance here in the last what seven eight years with the check nymphing and i hate to use these names as categories because they seem so, um, uh, what's the word, exclusive. Mm -hmm. uh, But uh, Ted basically fished nymphs, what we would today call nymphs. He called them weighted flies, um, as without an indicator on a very short line. And he made short upstream casts, drifted the nymphs through pockets off the tip of his rod, in fact, there was a book recently I, I read. It was called The History of uh, Fly Fishing Defined by 50 Flies. And there was hmm. a section about the Polish woven nymph. And then they, he, the author then talked about how, you know, Czech nymphing had become so popular here. Tournament nymphing had become so popular over the last few years. And as an as a author's footnote, he, at the end of it, says, we don't really feel completely comfortable assigning this technique to the to the Europeans because in the 1970s Ted Fay was fishing this way and he and he made a mention of the fact he gave a plug to the shop and he said That's and awesome. the shop is still in existence That's awesome. So yeah, I mean Ted, what what we think of as check nymphing is essentially Ted would have looked at it and said, "Oh, that's what I do." So it, it's, it's, uh, it's been around. We still have a few of the flies. Uh, certainly by 60s and 70s standards, they were very heavy. This, you keep in mind, this was long before we had uh, tungsten. The tungsten, tungsten yeah, 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 and all this. But uh, yeah, I mean, the technique was very similar. And he even used a dropper, much like many of the European rigs do. Um, and that's how he fished the fly. Yeah, I'm rigged like that today. For yeah. today, I got an Echo Shadow 2 ready to go, and yeah. it's a great nymphing rod. Yeah, Love exactly. It. And so that's essentially, I mean, so am I going to say, well, check nymphing start here? No, because I know that Joe Humphreys in the East was doing something very similar. But no, there's nothing new under the sun. It evolves. It's probably in our angler DNA. We know we need to get a lot of weight. We know we need a precise drift. So there's there's nothing u- unique in the sense of the basic technique. It's just how it's applied. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so Ted fished that way a long time ago. Certainly, at least four that's, years ago. That's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting how people are kind of secretive about some things. And yeah. do you find that 10% of the anglers catch 90% of the fish? And I so think, you can. I, I think that m- most of the fish are caught by really good anglers. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm certainly not one of them, but I, I, I'm in touch with guides. Steve's one. Uh, Fred Gordon is another. Ron Hart in Mount Shasta. These guys can go out and they can vacuum streams. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, I like that and, term. And, and they, you know, they they go out there and they make it look easy. Mm-hmm. And I think to a certain extent, uh, number one is confidence. Yeah. Uh, they, they have confidence in their flies, their rigging, their equipment. 
number two, I think they're precise in that, in that they, they good enough isn't. In other words, if they want a certain drift, they're going to adjust the rig mm-hmm. in the moment right. to yeah, make so when that you're, drift. I know some and of the better yeah. anglers I know, they change all the time. They're changing. And, and yeah. so when you're talking about the precision, you're talking about not only reading the water, but also getting it in the right column. Yeah, and the precision in, in, in for example, um, moving from one section of the river to the other. I think that, Nick, like you said, 85% of the anglers are going to say, well, I've got one split shot, and I've got my indicator rigged at this depth. I'm only going to fish another 20 yards before I go back to that water. So this is going to be good enough. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Whereas the guy who's precise says, no, I need to take off a little weight or I need to adjust the indicator and I'm going to take the moment to do it right now. And that's the guy that's going to catch that fish. Yeah. Because he was prepared for the next cast. He wasn't looking down the road five casts from now. He was, he was going to fish this cast. And that's the sense that I get from the guys who really, mm-hmm. really do well. And, and it's just, it's the last inch. Right. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's, you know, you're, the point, I, one of the things I take away from that is fly fishing is such an in-the-moment kind of a sport. Exactly. And it's one of the reasons I love it so much is because I can, it's, it's the ultimate relaxation thing for yeah. me. And it is because you're in the moment. And just time and space just kind of drops off the peripheral, you know. Getting deep, getting deep. Oh. <laughs> well, no, I know I fish better when I, I, I know I fish better when I pay attention to what I'm doing now. Your surroundings, yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. What I'm doing. Reading now. the water, reading the bug. I, I think at the end of the day, you can't measure your day uh, by how many fish you caught. Uh, I think you can measure your day by how, how big, preci- how yeah. precise you were. In your attempt to catch yeah, and the, what just the methodology that you exactly, apply exactly. to because it, that's, yeah. really that's the only thing you can control. That yeah. is the only thing you can. Yeah, you can't control the air temp. You can't that's control really the wind cool direction. About it. You can't control anything other than what you do. So you know, I mean, and so eighty-five percent of the guys are going to shine it on, and fifteen percent of the guys are going to be on it. Mm-hmm. And that's that's why I say, Nick. I think I totally agree with what you're saying. Well, I, I've. Growing up in this industry, I've always been pretty cagey and secretive about some of the places or things that I do, mm-hmm. and I've just found over time life's too short to oh, keep some yeah. of these things yeah. a secret. You know, it's just yeah. everybody should enjoy or experience some of this stuff and in, at some point you, in their you're life. Gonna, and you're going to be sharing it with the 85%. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and, and just to build on that, also, if you, you know, if you are transparent with that information and people, other people start to have success. I think they're going to have an innate love for the sport and all the conservation and stuff that goes into it. You're going to get more people key. on. And that's what this to is pile what on. podcast is all about that's is yeah. to inform people, hopefully correctly and make their day out there a little bit this, better. And yeah. Pre- you know, one of the things that, that always drove me crazy. And one of the reasons that I almost didn't buy a fly shop is that, uh, sometimes, I think inadvertently, just because of our egos, we we turn this into a, some kind of a secret ring society, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. where if you don't if you don't knock on the door the right way, you're not going to be allowed in. And 
I really don't believe fly fishing's ever been that way, but I think at times it can appear that way. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it, it, it doesn't have to be. It's it's not oblique. There's nothing. There's no secret to this. And and Steve and I run into this all the time. People are convinced that because we're around the sport all the time that we have the secret. We we have the secrets and. And we really need to share them with them. And it, that's a little bit frustrating for us because we don't have the <laughs> secrets. <laughs> and we're perfectly willing to share the fact that we don't have the secrets. And it, it's a little frustrating both to the customers and us because, hey, <laughs> believe it or not, we're telling you the truth. We don't know. But I think he's just saying that to your listeners out there because he told us about the secret fly a little like about <laughs> 20 minutes ago yeah. that we're going to be using today yeah, on that episode. Right. Yeah. Triple, triple rig. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, so. Cool. You want to wrap it up for us, Nick? No, it's, oh, yeah, this is great. Thanks a lot for having hey, us come in and pleasure. talk with you. It's been, pleasure. been a great. Anybody listening, this is an awesome place to stop by and well, get you. some good supplies before it's you go hit the upper sack. Yep. Yep. Yep, or McLeod or Pitt or any of the local yeah. rivers around here. It's absolutely stop by and say hi to Bob. He'll give you ninety percent off. Is that right? Ninety, yeah. you said? Ninety ninety five percent. Ninety five percent. After we mark it up five thousand. <laughs> <laughs> well, cool. Thanks for having us All on, Bob. Right. Well, Appreciate thank it. Thank you, Chad. Nick. Take care. All right, thanks. This podcast would not be possible without support from our sponsors, Fish Bio and Amped Up Build. FishBio is a consulting firm that offers a fresh approach to fishery science. They specialize in fish research, monitoring, and conservation with innovative uses of technology and communication. From their offices in Chico, Oakdale, and Santa Cruz, California, to Vienchen, Laos, FishBio is committed to solving natural resource challenges locally and globally. Learn more at www.fishbio.com. And Amp.Bill. Amp is a software design and engineering shop located in Chico, California. Amp creates beautiful apps for mobile and desktop devices, wearables, and the Internet of Things. Amp develops native, web, and hybrid apps on a variety of platforms. Chad, who co-hosts this podcast, is the agency's founder. Learn more at www.amp.build.